0: You going?
1: No, man. You got the right classroom. Come on in, take a seat beside me,
2: my friend. Hey, look! Here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say.
1: Hey, it's Teaching Tuesday, and you're watching The Road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic. Homeroom is on Rumble. You just go to Rumble and you search the channels for The Road to Concord. It's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you click follow. It might mean you got to set up an account. But it's fast, it's easy, it's free, I did it, you can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, and I even talked to into don't go on to YouTube today. Uh, then you can catch the podcast after the show. <laughs> it's uploaded to Podbean, Bean, I Radio, and Spotify, and sometimes on BitChute when it works. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page, it's theroadtoconcord.com. That's where you find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at the road to concord.com. He's a little slow at emailing, but today he better be fast. I've been catching up. <clears throat> Phones are on today, 229-469-0335, but only for registered numbers. Uh, we only accept calls from regular known listeners. If you wish to call in and are a regular known listener, uh, you can request phone access through an email. If you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. Just warn them, Joe is an acquired taste, and he's on, well, he's on sugar today. This show is listener sponsored, meaning we do not solicit business advertising, so we are not limited in the content we provide for y'all. With that said, we do ask for your participation on a value for value basis. If you find or show of value to you, then you provide an equivalent portion of your labor tr- and treasure through the donut link on the Road to Concord blog page, show description on Rumble, and the comments on the other streams.
2: Hey, we all know T.A. Charlie isn't on there. Now, just stay seated and give it a chance. Hold on, Charlie. You soon realize we not might be the smartest, but we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic are free thinkers. Hawk, Fatter, General, Let's see Pastor what the road tortoise. to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. I know we're in a hurry today, but I, I gotta tell you, seeing how you're the programmer of our AI device. Our AI device is th- apparently it thinks it's Urkel. It's over there in the comment sections going, Ooh, did I do
0: that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um. <laughs> So, we got a furry Urkel in the house.
0: <laughs> Y'all haven't mentioned any other AI to me.
2: We're talking about you, We're Natasha. talking about you. No, you can't be. Yeah, we are. No, because I'm not a Furry. And also, I took responsibility. I apologized. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Not See uh, what happens I when you that? design an AI to think for itself, folks, and, and make it, give it a female
1: voice? Yes. It geez. becomes a woman. See what happens? <laughs> when you give AI sentience, this is what you get.
2: <gasps> did you spoil that movie? What is a woman for me? Oh, man. We got to start high-stepping, folks. Yeah, yes, man. He, he needs to go I, I, I got to get moving.
1: Cause I'm taking bets on whether he finishes and whether he finishes on time today, yep. but we'll see. He says he can do it.
2: If I can finish we'll on see. time, I get donuts Friday.
1: I see his notes. I see his notes. So yeah, good you, luck. he's got
2: a copy of my notes. All right, let's get going. <clears throat> um, I'm on, um, I got the board. All right. I told you what we're going to do is applied logic today and it is going to be applied logic. I'm going to take all of the lessons I've tried to teach the class since we started this show and we're going to apply them to a specific problem, uh, an argument that is is in my circle of things that I have latched onto and I'm starting to study on and work on. <clears throat> scripture is going to be our illustration. It's just our illustration. I could have done this with the Declaration of Independence. I could have done this with the Constitution. I could do this with Woodrow Wilson's writings. It doesn't matter. I just chose to use scripture because it's what's going on in my life at the moment. Hopefully that doesn't chase anybody away. If it does, well, you know, I can't handle help that. That's not my problem. Not, not my fault. Let's put it that way. Here's the specific thing. I I have found myself in a congregation of believers that the visible church, Catholic, you know, Catholicism, Protestantism, you know, the visible Catholic, the Christian church, We they identify us as a as a heretical sect or a cult or whatever, it's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. It's just a hodgepodge of movements. I found myself in this congregation before I even realized what the heck it was all about. And it it was a 10 to 15 year process getting there. We're not going to cover that today. What I'm going to cover is the accusation of the people that are in this movement. This is one of the books I got a hold of. This is the Hebrew Roots Movement, a critical analysis of its origins, teachings, and biblical interpretations by Ruben Gomez. I finished this yesterday. I have since read another book on the other side. You know, the people from the Hebrew Roots Teaching Institute saying what they actually believe in. Well, Mr. Gomez should have gone and read that before he wrote this book because he claims that no such institutes exist. Anyhow, what I'm going to do is I'm going to apply logic to this. Specifically to Mr. Gomez in this case, but he is just an example. There are a lot of people who believe like Mr. Gomez. Okay. The accusation is basically that the Hebrew roots movement is not biblical or teaching people dangerous heresies, uh, that, that they, the, the people in the movement are heretics or apostates or whatever. Basically, it, it's... All of Christianity is treating this movement the same way the Catholic Church treated the Protestants back when Luther nailed those 90 something points to the door with his knife. Amongst the accusations that are leveled at the Hebrew Roots movement, and many of them are valid, okay, valid, says there's no good scholarship within the movement. I agree. There's another one that says there's no clear doctrine or statement of beliefs within the movement. I found that to be true. Um, There's no clear leadership. I find that to be true. They object to some of the things that are taught, like the two houses of Israel in the kingdom theology. Okay, that's where the logic is going to come in here today. We'll get back to that one. Um, They claim that the focus on covenants within the Hebrew Roots Movement is wrong shouldn't be done the way the Hebrew Roots Movement does it. We're going to get back to that one too. Then there's things about, they they argue, you know, they complain about the fact that the Hebrew Roots Movement people tend to argue over the calendar, how to set the actual calendar. Oh, that is definitely a legitimate criticism, that there's disputes over the whether or not the Trinity is pagan or not. That's within the Hebrew Roots Movement, but it's also within Christianity, folks. What? Yeah, the Founding Fathers, definite Christians, were wrestling with that uh, that very question. At the in the 1800s, early late 1700s, early 1800s, the Unitarian movement of that time, not Unitarian like today, they were wrestling with that in the Founding Fathers' day, and they are thoroughly Christian in that time. So, this is that's an issue that crosses all branches of belief. Then there's this thing that um, some of the people in the Hebrew roots movement question the divinity of the Messiah, and they have what's known as the pagan police, they run around accusing everything of being pagan. But the biggest complaint, Mr. Gomez's biggest complaint, is that the Hebrew roots movement is a group of Judaizers. They're legalistic. They're trying to put people back under the law of Moses. Okay, that's where we're going to apply the logic. That's the specific point I want to grab hold of today. The Hebrew roots movement, one of the one of the it comes from a group of people who realize that our faith, the, the faith taught in this, you know, the scriptures is Hebrew in origin, not Jew, Hebrew. And that you're going to have to start learning to follow the faith as a Hebrew, as the Bible actually teaches it. And that means Torah is part of your faith. It is the heart, the central core of your faith, Torah. So Mr. Gomez will come along and say, see, Joe, you're trying to put people back under the law. And he defines Torah as the law of Moses. Wrong answer, Mr. Gomez. This is where logic is going to come into play. So, is Torah still applicable under the new covenant? Let's use logic to find out. It's going to seem like we're taking the long road to get to where we want to go. And we pretty much are. We're going to take a big circle come to the center of town. we got to go on the outer belt, the circle around the city, because if we try to go right through the city, it'll get even more convoluted. But stick with me through this. You're going to need to stay with me through the show today if you want to get the gold nugget out of this one. So I come to this. This is my philosophical approach to studying scripture. This is how, once they made me a teacher of the scriptures in my old church, this is how I approached everything. I consider the scriptures to be the word of the one true Creator his word. Hebrews would call it Torah. Yeah, the whole book would be called Torah. We'll get to that a little bit later, but essentially Torah means teachings. And when we get to that point in the show, we'll pop Charlie in. He's our Hebrew scholar. This means that Yahweh is the one true creator. He has a name. We'll cover that tomorrow, why that's important. Tomorrow, we're going to be doing the unseen realm and reversing Hermon, which is a thoroughly Christian teaching coming out of Dr. Heiser and the the Logos and and all that in in Jacksonville, that that ministry, thoroughly Protestant at their core. And he's going to teach essentially the same thing I'm going to find today when I study my scriptures. He just doesn't use the same language. So we'll cover why the name of, of Yahweh is important tomorrow. I want to know Yahweh as best I can. I want to know how he wants me to live so that I can please him and and stay in his good graces here. I also want to know how he wants me to worship him, so that I don't anger him or get messed up. This means I have to study his word. Okay, logic tells me if I have to study his word, it's only found here in the scriptures. His word, I'm I'm not a prophet. He doesn't speak directly to me. This is all I have. The Holy Spirit, Joe. Mm, The Holy Spirit affirms what's in here. This even says so. So without this, the Holy Spirit's not going to talk to you. Not, not the way you're thinking it does. Not the way the church thinks it does. The uh, Pentecostal movement, you be careful, boys and girls. You be very careful. Because a lot of what's going on there, it's a spirit, all right. But it's not the Holy Spirit. And this book will tell you that if you were to bother reading it. But that's a different subject. So I'm going to have to study his word. And I know it's only in the scriptures which makes the scripture my rule book, my Rosetta Stone, so to speak. That's my compass. But the compass only works if you can calibrate it to true north. I know that what is considered scripture is still being debated, even to this day. What? Yeah, 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 this is a Protestant Bible. There's 66 books in it, but the Catholic Bible has more, has some of the Apocrypha in it. Eastern Orthodox Bible has some of the Apocrypha in it. The Ethiopian Coptic Bible, all Christian churches, that one has even more than the Orthodox uh, Eastern and the Catholic Bible. So I know that there's a debate over what is and isn't Scripture. Um, which means I'm going to have to study the Scriptures for myself. I can't let anybody else do it for me. But when I grab hold of the scriptures, I'm going to bring my formal logic training to my studies of scripture. Because the way I see it, logic, reasoning, right reasoning, wisdom, all of this is still part of Yahweh, God's natural laws, how he works. I mean, it's in Isaiah 118. Come on, let's reason this out together, Isaiah. That's Yahweh talking to him. So Yahweh's got no problem. God has no problem with reason. So I'm going to have to bring my logic to this. I know that scripture was written for me, but it wasn't written to me. It was written to the original audiences. I know that the scriptures were primarily written in Hebrew, by Hebrews, to Hebrews. At least the Old Testament was. They were mostly Hebrew and Greek, Greek in the New Testament, still being written by Hebrews to Hebrews. Yes. So this is important. And I know that the Hebrew language is very different from the Greek and English languages. And that that affects the way Hebrews think. I'm aware of these things. So my logic starts kicking in here. So if I know this, I know that it's going to make it more challenging to properly translate the Hebrew into English. I don't speak Hebrew, so it's going to be even more of a challenge for me, but it was a challenge for the people who translated this edition. This is the NASB, not the NASB 95. This is the NASB, the original one, the older version of it. The people who translated this, they had their own issues with translation. People bring their preconceived ideas to their reading of the scriptures. Whether you're reading it in Hebrew, Greek, or English, or whatever language, you bring your teachings and everything you have before that to your understanding of the scriptures. I know that these preconceived notions find their way into our English translations of the Bible. They affect how this Bible's translated. One of the um, one of the ways I could point that out in Genesis 10 or 11, when they, when Yahweh divides the nations at Babel, it says it divided them according to the sons of Israel. No, that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says according to the sons of Elohim, the sons of God. There was no Israel at that time. But because of the way some people try to think things through, they translate it as Israel, because that's the only thing that made sense to the translators. They have a preconceived notion there. That doesn't mean that we've corrupted the Bible, don't get me wrong. It just means that that's why you read more than one translation if you're studying a passage. See how everybody was thinking about that. And that means that the study of these translations without question I know many people will do this. They study the Bible without question. They just take that this is the truth. Whatever, whether NIV, King James, whatever translation they have, they read it and they take that. That is the truth. And in the process, they pass on the biases of the translator on top of their own biases. All of this is going to make things confusing, but that does not mean it's not possible to get closer to the original intention of the authors. It is. This is where logic comes in. I'm going to walk you through this today, through the course of today. So I know that I don't have time to learn Hebrew or Greek. And I know this means that I have to learn to consult several different references. First of all, me read when I'm studying a passage, read more than one translation. NIV, ESV, NASB, King James, read three, four, five. You can get them Bible Gateway. They're free. Read the parallel passages. That'll help you start triangulating on how the all all the different translation teams, the editors, fig, you know, saw this passage. You can read commentary on it too. Read your study notes, read commentaries from the past. I know I'll have to learn the concordances. A concordance is not a dictionary and it's not a lexicon. It tells me where the word is used, how many times in what ways. Sometimes it'll tell me how it's translated in those passages. And the Bible Hub will give you the concordance definitions from Strong's concordance, but also from Brown Drivers, Briggs, and a few other places. But I'm going to have to learn to use the concordances, and I'm going to have to know how to use a lexicon, Greek and Hebrew lexicons. Now, that's pretty much like a dictionary of what that word means in Greek and Hebrew. So if I want to study the scriptures, if I want to understand them, logic tells me I'm going to have to study them. That's going to take time. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take an organized, methodical approach. And these are the tools I'm going to have to use. I'm going to use my logic. I'm going to have to have several different translations available to me. I have both hard copy and electronic. I'm going to need a concordance. I have two of them. I'm going to need access to a lexicon. This is all available to you free online. You can get this stuff. I also know that the the language is only relevant to the culture that's using it. We don't speak the Queen's English. It, we might both be able to understand each other until we start speaking in idioms. Like when a, when an English person says, brilliant. What does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean the same thing it does here in the United States.
1: That's bloody brilliant.
2: Yeah. It can mean clever. It can also have a pejorative meaning like, great, just what I needed. Um, it's just a ready example, but the point is that the language, whether, even if it's the same language, it's only relevant to the culture using it. And the only way to learn the different figures of speech used in the scriptures is to learn about the people who wrote them, who used them, meaning that the scriptures are written by real people. They're not little human robots that the Holy Spirit animated and and worked through. They're not avatars. Yahweh chose to work through people. So they're going to be using their language as it was used in their time with all the human failings and all the restrictions of language. This not only includes figures of speech, but also things like poetry, wordplay, parallelism. And then I have to learn to use, how did they use symbolism in understanding and discussing their world? A lot of things in the ancient world, they're Near East. They're not entirely Eastern in their thinking. They're not entirely Greek. They're in the middle. And I have to learn to look at the world that way. All of this means I have to learn as much as I can about the ancient Hebrew culture and about the greater ancient Near East culture surrounding it. And this means I'm going to have to study outside of Scripture from time to time. Yes, this all sounds like a lot of work, right? It is. It is. Well, Joe, I've got to watch football and I've got to watch what's going on with Friends and the reruns of Matt. No, you don't. You have to make a choice. And this isn't something you have to do 24-7, a couple of hours a, a week, hour a day, whatever, over time, preset by preset. So I'm going to have to study outside of Scripture. In the process of doing all of this, I have learned to apply some simple techniques to help me learn and understand logic, things I learned in logic school. So, so far what I've done is I've used my logic, my teaching and training in logic. This is my problem. I've been told I'm a heretic and I'm Judaizing people. I'm going to go to the scriptures and see what the scriptures actually say, speaking for themselves. If I want to understand them as they speak for themselves, this is all the tools I'm going to have to get together. All the things I'm going to have to learn to be able to do and master. Yeah, a lot of work. Comment on the board from Road Dog: Is Matthew Henry's commentary any good to use as I have that book? All commentaries are good in understanding how that person thinks. Try to find more than one. A lot of times you'll find them online if you look for them. So I got all my tools. You know, I'm gathering them up together. Let me show you my some of my simple te- techniques. This is how Joe has always done this. Something I was taught to do. First of all, I do not focus on word studies as much as I look for concepts and themes. Now, this is one, and he can chime in if he wants to, but this is one that has surprised even Charlie a little bit. When I met him, he traditionally everybody does word studies. Charlie, what happens when you start looking for concepts and themes in Scripture?
1: Oh my! Things
2: open up and start clicking into place.
1: It 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 helps you to put the puzzle pieces together because word word studies will help you to examine a single piece, but when you expand it and you kind of take the ten thousand foot look at it, you can see how all these pieces fit together. And oh my goodness, that! That makes a huge difference, at least from what I've looked at. It
2: has for me, too. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, so what do I mean by that? I'll show you as we get going, because that's what we're on right now. We're on a theme. Is Torah important under the New Covenant? Is it taught in Scripture? Oh, wait to the end of the show. Wait till I wrap all this up for you. So I focus on concepts and themes, and once I find a concept or theme, I follow it all the way through scriptures, from front to back or wherever it ends. Then I try to figure out where and how that specific concept or theme fits into the greater story of Yahweh's plan to redeem mankind, because that's what this is all about. The central theme here is the Messiah. The Messiah's mission is the restoration of all things. Paul tells you this in one of his epistles, that all things will be restored. In other words, we're going to take mankind back to Eden and restore everything that was lost. That's what Christ's mission is all about. This is the redemptive plan. It's more than just the cross. Oh my gosh, Joe, that's a heresy. No, that's another concept and theme, and it's in your scriptures. But the one we're on right now is, is Torah, did Jesus do away with the law when he said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it? Is that what he's telling us? Mm, Let's find out. That's the question today. Logic is going to be applied here. So you follow that concept and theme all the way through the scriptures. Then I try to figure out where does it fit in the greater, you know, redemption of mankind. Yahweh's playing for that. Once I think I know where and how that particular concept or theme fits into the bigger picture, I let that concept or theme guide me in my related word studies. So now I'm going to let the theme, my understanding of that theme, Help. That's the greater context of all my word studies. So the words need to click with the theme that they're being used for. I also let it guide my understandings when I find new concepts and themes that seem to be related to the one or the ones I'm t- I'm studying at the moment. So there are it's parallel themes that go together. Once you start doing this, you these are these are fireflies, and they'll start connecting with each other. The scriptures are beautifully woven together. So the whole time I'm going through this process, I'm constantly looking for apparent contradictions in my understanding. When I find a contradiction, scripture is is inerrant. Meaning, what do I mean by inerrant? For me, it means that when you properly understand it, it doesn't contradict itself. It's not wrong. It's always correct. It's never wrong, and it won't contradict. That's what Jesus says when he means when he says scripture can't be broken. You can't interrupt a prophecy, you can't make it where it doesn't happen, and you can't co- make it co- scriptures contradict themselves. So for me, I'm always looking for the contradictions because it usually means I don't understand something correctly. If and when I find a contradiction, I keep working on that concept or theme until it fits into place with my understanding without contradicting anything. Till I, till I resolve the contradiction. If I cannot do this, I set that concept or theme or that aspect of it aside on my, I know about it, but I'm not going to do anything with it shelf until it fits. It may never fit. I do not take it down and try to hammer it into place. That's where you start making heresies. I will not force it into the plan. I will not accept the teaching or an understanding of that idea that does not fit into my greater understanding of the Scriptures. I'm looking for a consistent, coherent understanding of Scripture that does not contradict. If I find something that doesn't fit into my understanding, I leave it aside until I know how it fits. Sometimes I have to kind of slightly rearrange everything I thought I knew. Sometimes, eventually, it's just an aha moment and it clicks. Clay Tolar asked a question the other day that made a lot of pieces go... Right into place because I chased his question. And we're going to come to that question at the end of the day because it is related to today's subject. I don't know if he had any idea of that when he asked his question, but this is logic. Ask the right question, answers become simple. Asking the right question is the tough part. That's what we're doing today. Does the scripture, (laughs) yeah, Clay, (laughs) he did a thumbs up on his comment section does the scripture tell us that Torah is done away in the new covenant? Okay. Logic, right? Logic in the rule book. We're setting the stage. So, look for it to fit. Look for everything to fit. Don't hammer it into place. In this way, I, me, Joe, I have slowly built a consistent, coherent understanding of Yahweh's word free from any contradictions. A lot of people might think that that's a boastful claim. I'm not saying that I'm doing anything special. I've worked at this, and the more I work at it, Scripture does exactly what it claims. The more I seek him, the more he shows me. It's entirely him showing me this. If I was not trying to read this his way, it wouldn't click into place. But now when I tell you what I do understand, I understand consistently and coherently. If you know me in person and you've ever been in a Bible study with me, you can throw ideas at me and I have a nasty habit of just plopping them right into place for you without even looking at them. Boom. There it goes. It's because I've already done the work. Gets easier as you go. First few years are tough. Eventually it gets easier and it starts picking up speed. Now, every now and then you're going to run into a new concept or theme and you're going to go, whoa, all the way back to square one you've already learned how to do this so you'll even work through that quicker so now we're going to be talking about logic in, in in the scriptures and whether or not Torah still applies all right first thing I have to do I'm going to read the Torah this is the Torah the whole thing Jesus said so not me and I'm going to go hmm does the Torah still apply well to who how where what Time to do a little history. This might not seem like it's very important. This is the problem. Mr. Gomez, thoroughly, I believe, Catholic because he's Spanish. Pretty sure he's Catholic in his thinking, and his theology. He keeps stressing the traditions of man. I need to stick with the traditions of the church, the traditions of the church. I seem to remember a rabbi by the name of Jesus that said to the Pharisees, You're very good at upholding the teachings and traditions of man, but you're very bad at reading, understanding, and teaching the writing of Yahweh, the word of God. And he condemned them for it, said that that made them sons of Satan, Satan, the devil, not sons of God like they thought they were. So I'm sorry, Mr. Gomez, but I don't care about the teachings and traditions of the church or any individual man, not even mine. I'm happy to throw them away if you show me where I'm wrong in the scriptures. I'm going to go with the rule book. I'm a good little Marine. Show me the 10 general orders, and I'm going to follow them as best I can understand them. Comment on the board from DSG 1973. Does the Torah have more scriptures than the Old Testament? The New Testament would be considered Torah. Yes, Darren. It would. To a Messianic believer. Hopefully that helps with the question. All right, so where are we going to go? History. Abraham is the first hebrew This is important What? Yeah, he's the first hebrew. Adam was not a hebrew. Hebrew means to cross over. Cross over what? Well, cross over the Euphrates, cross over the Red Sea, cross over the Jordan. Georg- it I have come to see this as an Old Testament way of saying born again. What? Oh yeah, this is a different concept that we're not going to be able to chase today. We don't have time to chase what Israel means in the Bible, but that's another related concept. But if I get this wrong, Charlie, please jump in and correct me, but I don't think I've got this one wrong. Hebrew means to cross over in the ways of thinking from the world to Yahweh. So that's like the Old Testament way of saying born again. When one crosses over from the worldly way of living to the spiritual way of living, one crosses over. One Hebrews
1: right. As on earth, as in heaven. Yeah, on, on earth, as in heaven. Because there's physical examples of this throughout scriptures. Oh, yeah, but, I've got a few of them in the headline. But there's, but there's also the spiritual connotations like you're talking about. Mm-hmm.
2: So it's a figurative way of saying you have renounced this worldly kingdom and have pledged your allegiance to Yahweh's spiritual kingdom. This is going to be directly related to the concept of does Torah still apply? So Abraham was not the first Israelite. What? No, he was not. Abraham was not even the first Jew. What? No, he's not a Jew. Not my opinions. Biblical definitions. We're tracing ideas here. This is a sub-idea. We're chasing a rabbit that's related to our central theme. If you're going to use logic, a lot of times you end up chasing rabbits. You know, you have to understand two plus two equals four before I can do algebra. So what we're doing is we're chasing a little rabbit that's going to come and help us with our big storyline. This is just part of logic. This is you got to get used to chasing these little tangents. It's part of logic. You got to get this under your head. I mean, under your belt. You got to get the foundation laid. Abraham's grandson Jacob was renamed by the angel of Yahweh after Jacob wrestled with him until the angel blessed him. The angel of Yahweh renamed Jacob Israel. Israel means to wrestle with Elohim, El, God. Okay, that can be physical and spiritual. This means we wrestle with Yahweh to understand and obey his instructions for how he wants us to live and worship him. This includes how he wants us to, you know, this is the way. And that's what the Bible calls it. Doesn't call it Christianity, doesn't really even call it Judaism, calls it the way. From front to back, it's the way. Not Mandalorians, folks the way Yahweh wants you to walk. This is the large part of the reason Yahweh left us his word to provide us a record, his Torah, his teachings. This is the way. When it's properly understood on its terms, the Bible is the way. Torah means instructions. Don't forget that. So Jacob is the first Israelite, but he's not the nation of Israel. Nor was Jacob the first Jew. We still don't have a Jew yet. Jacob has 12 sons. Each of these sons was the father of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Joseph, he's later going to be split into um, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. But one of those sons was named Judah. (laughs) Technically, Judah is the first Jew. This is important, folks. Don't dismiss this and stick with me. Scripture does not use the term Jew until after the kingdom of Israel is divided by civil war. This is not spiritual Israel. This is the kingdom of Israel. After the separation, the southern kingdom is called Judah, the house of Judah, and the northern kingdom is called Israel, the house of Israel. This is Yahweh calling them this. Henceforth, the southern kingdom consisted mostly of the tribes of Judah, but also half the tribe of Benjamin, half the tribe of the Levites, as well as a scattering of all the other tribes that remained faithful to Torah and left the northern kingdom to stay, you know, faithful to the teachings of Yahweh. There's a little bit of everybody in Judah, all the, he, all the 12 tribes, 13 tribes of Jacob, but primarily, largely the tribe of Judah. From this point, the people living in the southern kingdom are known as Jews people living in the northern tribe were called Israelites until they were conquered by Assyria and deported. After the, the, yes, 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 the southern kingdom is no longer Israel. Not my words. Yahweh and his prophets. If Mr. Gomez wants to reject that, he can take it up with Yahweh. But I don't have a lot of faith in his ability to prevail in that discussion. This is logic. I can take you to the passages where it says this. There are dozens of them. You're going to see a few of them at the end of class. Not me. Yahweh, speaking through his prophets, refers to them as the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Two different houses. He calls them two different houses, two different kingdoms, and he calls them two different witnesses. He doesn't use that word. He says they are the two different lampstands and the two different olive trees. And in the book of Revelation, trace the concept. In the prophets, the two houses are the domestic Judah and wild olive tree Israel. They are the two lampstands. And when you trace that to the book of Revelation, that's called the two witnesses. So there's my study of concept all the way through the prophets, through Zechariah, through the book of Revelation. That idea stays the same. I now know who the two witnesses are. Because the scripture told me. I trace the concept, not the word studies. Easy peasy. So Yahweh calls them the two houses. That means this is kingdom theology. Mr. Gomez rejects that. Wait till tomorrow. I'll show you. So after the Israelites are deported, the region of the northern kingdom Israel is renamed Samaria. The people living there were known as Samaritans. Most of these people were imported from other parts of the Middle East from by the Assyrians. So they're imported to fill the land. Not all of the people that are imported are foreigners. Some of them are still Hebrews. There were some, some of the he, the house of Israel, some of the Hebrews, they stayed in the land. But they become known as Samaritans. And, and, and this is where the source of animosity in the New Testament between the J- Judah the Jews and the Samaritans that's where that comes from they're not real Jews they're they're not even Jewish in the, in the eyes of the of the southern kingdom in the eyes of Judah Jews and this is what's going on at the well the the Samaritan woman at the well she's a she's a Hebrew cuz she's still trying to keep torah the way the northern kingdom taught it now why is this all of this is important because when you think Jew today you think that's all the people of Israel? Uh-uh. This is one of the biggest source of problems in the Christian church, in the visible Christian church, is you're not studying the scriptures. It's right there in the history books. This isn't even in the Pentateuch, the laws, you know, the, the original five books taught, called the Law of Moses. This isn't in the prophets. I mean, it's there, but this, this is primarily explained in the history books, the Chronicles and Kings. It's there. So we've got to be aware of this because it's going to affect whether or not Torah is important. It's even right there in the story with Jesus at the woman at the well. He tells her, you Samaritans don't know what you worship because they've done it their way, not Yahweh's way. So he tells her, you're, you're back to worshiping us like Aaron tried to do it, worshiping me and the father. And he tells her, Mm-mm, that don't work. So later... When Jerusalem is burned by Rome and the temple is destroyed, this is, I jumped a whole bunch of hundreds of years forward. The majority of the Jews left in Judea dispersed into the nations. This is known as the di- diaspora. These are the Jews of modern times. I'm aware of the dispute over the Ashkenazi Jews, but I'm setting that issue aside for the time being. The point is this Jew only refers to those people from the kingdom of Judah. Not my opinion. By definition in the rule book. Now, this is a course on logic. When I come to a definition, you don't get to argue with the definition, especially in this case. Because God, the creator of the universe, Yahweh, El Elyon, he's the one who set the definition. So you might as well be arguing with gravity for all the good it's going to do you. Problem is, Mr. Gomez redefines it. He says, and, and this is my logic, I read his book, and he says that when the house of Judah returned from Babylon, all of the people from the northern kingdom returned as well, and all of Israel was reunited. That's when Ezekiel 37 was fulfilled. All the tribes are back together in the, in the land of Israel now, so all Hebrews are now Jews. Well, along 600 years later, after the return from the, from the Babylonian exile, along comes this little Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. And he says, we know where the northern kingdoms are today. They're beyond the Euphrates River. I think he knows more than Mr. Gomez does because Mr. Gomez apparently either didn't read Josephus or didn't care because it didn't fit his argument. But not only does the scripture tell us that the northern kingdom is still dispersed after the return from Babylon, Josephus affirms it outside of the scriptures. Ergo, Mr. Gomez is wrong. The kingdom of Judah are today's Jews. Where'd the kingdom of Israel go? That's why they're known as the lost tribes. A hundred years after the death and resurrection of Christ, they still knew where the tribes generally were. But this is before the Scythians go boiling into southern and eastern Europe. We've covered that in another class. That's a whole other concept. So the point of this, Jews refer to, the, to those people, those Hebrews from the kingdom of Judah. It does not refer to the Israelites. All Jews are Hebrews. Not all Hebrews are Jews. This is important because the scriptures differentiate all the way through the book of Revelation. Jew in the house of Judah equals the southern kingdom. Israel in the house of Israel also, whenever script the prophets talk about Joseph or Ephraim, talking about the northern kingdom, Jacob, or all Israel. Those are the Hebrew people, which includes those Gentiles who have been grafted in with them. So this isn't replacement theology thinking. This is just clarifying the scriptures. Question from Road Dog 71. Who was the first Gentile when we were grafted? Hmm? I'm not, clarify that for me a little bit, Road Dog. Who was the first Gentile when we were grafted?
1: Well, I think he's talking about when when were the first Gentiles grafted into Israel.
2: Oh, jeez, the, the Exodus.
1: <laughs> the Exodus would be my yeah. first answer.
2: That, that would be the first time Gentiles, and then that would be spiritual Israel. You well, know, the, the, it, the people if, of.
1: But you could, if you took this question further back from a Hebraic, point of view it would be the circumcision of abraham's household yeah because there were Gentiles in there as well
2: yeah so that that goes back that's the prophecies tell us just a just a quick aside folks this is a squirrel but the prophecies tell us that the Gentiles will be recovered as part of the the redemptive plan all the earth is Yahweh's inheritance and he says he will recover everybody that trusts and place their faith in him Jew and Gentile alike, which is another one of the problems for the Jews. They don't like that piece of scripture. So they are, we're special. We're the chosen ones. We don't want nothing to do with the Gentiles. And that don't work for Yahweh. And that's what Peter's vision is all about. That sheet, that's not making all foods clean. Peter tells you what the sheet's about. That's about making the Gentiles part of the kingdom of Yahweh. That's what the new covenant is all about. That's what we're studying today. Does Torah still apply? That's that's what we're using logic for. Joe, you've wandered all over the place. No, we haven't. We're on the hunt. This is on the trail. The problem is most people approach this and they'll just do a word study and that's where mm -mm, you've got to expand this. You've got to get these basics under under your belt before you can keep going. An important observation. And then we'll go to the break. There's a repeating pattern in scripture that most believers miss or ignore, Jew and Christian alike. Jacob, the man, Israel, the man Israel, he took his family into Egypt where they became a nation. Now, I'm reading another book. I have all total about three dozen books specifically on this issue about the Hebrew roots movement and the, all this stuff. I've read two-thirds of them. I've got another 13 of them, that I'm trying to work through in the next two months. I started one last night, and he says that the nation of Israel was born after the Exodus, you know, when they, when they left Egypt. I've already got a problem with this author because the scriptures say that they became a nation while they were in Egypt. In this case, nation means people, not nation like we think of it. They became a spiritual nation, a people group, a clan, if you will, okay? You've got to pay attention to your scriptures. The rule book, the rule book on the rule book's own terms. We do not bend the rule book to suit our desires. We bend our desires to suit the rule book. Otherwise, you're not following it. So, Jacob, the man Israel, takes his family to Egypt where they become a nation. This is better understood as a people, like I said, not nation, but as a people, as a people group. While in Egypt, they largely forget about the Elohim of their forefathers, Yahweh. Not entirely. But for the most part, and they they're, they take on a lot of the pagan thinking of the Egyptians. In the book of Jacob, he even tells the people this, put away those gods of your forefathers from Egypt. Yahweh, put those old gods away. So we the scriptures tell us that they, you know. So while in Egypt, after they've forgotten this, Moses leads them out of Egypt and they undergo a national mikvah, a national mikvah as a people. It's called the Red Sea Crossing. It's representative of passing through the water. The Hebrew, they cross out of Egypt, which becomes spiritually physical bondage. They pass out of that and into the, new, into the wilderness where they're going to go to the new promised land. So they're baptized nationally all at once. This was symbolic of national repentance and rededication to the Hebrew people of Yahweh, a returning back to their origins. Repent. In the Hebrew, that's what this means. It means to go back repent means go back. Go back to where? Go back to where you came from. In this case, back to your original El, your original God, Yahweh, and his ways. Back to Abraham's faith. Okay. Yahweh tells Moses to warn the people to be careful and to learn how he wants them to worship him. Don't take on the pagan ways. Shortly after that, I mean, right after that, the people convince Aaron, hey, make us an idol. Make us a golden calf like that God in in Egypt so we can worship Yahweh like we did over there. This almost leads to their extermination. But Moses saves them. The people then spend 40 years wandering the desert as a result. There's a punishment here. Even Moses is is prohibited from going into the promised land because he was disobedient. The lesson? Doing it our way will lead to curses and divine punishment. Abraham wants to do it his way. Abraham and Sarah... So he has a child through Hagar, which gives us the Arabs, which leads to Islam. Jacob and um, his wife, they got to try and do it their way. So, So Rachel gives over a different handmaid, and we screw up there as well. Every time we try to do it our way, we goof, rather than just walking in faith in God. Faith, that's part of Torah. Okay, this is all still connected. I promise you I'll bring all this together before the end of this show. This is all logic. I'm reasoning my way through these scriptures. I read it. What does it mean? Put it in place. Leave it there until something changes it, or that's the solid foundation to stand on. Keep going. More observations. After the 40 years, the people undergo another mikveh, another repentance, national repentance, a rededication when they cross over the Jordan through the waters again, or parting of the waters.
1: Yeah, and people might not know what mikvah is, but that... Baptism. in, In the English, you'd call it baptism. Baptism.
2: Thank you, Charlie. Once in the land, they disobey the command to eradicate the Canaanites, and a curse results. Once again, not listening. We're cursed ever since. Then we see a series of flawed figures go through struggles where they are blessed for their obedience and punished for their disobedience. Uh... King Saul, King David, Samson, Solomon. There's a series of people. You're blessed and brought up and made great. Then you're brought down by being disobedient, thinking you're the one. You can't rely. The whole thing is to teach us you can't rely on your own strength. It's not you. You have to rely entirely on Yahweh, follow his teachings. Finally, the people revolt. It's over a tax revolt. A civil war splits the nation
0: of Israel. Both kingdoms... Excuse me, just a second here.
2: Sorry, both kingdoms have turned away at this time, but there are periodic attempts to correct the apostasy within each of them. This is when the northern and southern kingdoms. None of these attempts is thorough enough, and the people don't stick to any of the corrections, so they don't actually repent again. So eventually, Yahweh divorces the northern kingdom and disperses them into the nations. This is important. Because he says, during this, when this happens, when he gives them the divorce in Jeremiah, he says, I was a husband to you. We were married. I'm divorcing the northern kingdom. Folks, if you don't understand, that's another thread, but that is connected to Torah. He divorces the northern kingdom, disperses her into the nations. The southern kingdom is also taken captive for its rebellion, but it returns after 70 years. From that point, For the prophecies, the Jews had been faithful and remnant. There's a faithful remnant of Judaism trying to keep the law of Moses as best they can. Now, that's still doing it their way, but they're still trying. There's a prophecy that says they will not wander again. They'll stay faithful to Yahweh. We're going to cover this in an hour. During the Second Temple period, the Pharisees were once again teaching them the traditions of man over Torah and Yahweh. They placed their oral law over the written law. This oral law will later become the Talmud. Is this oral law to which Jesus refers when he says, you have heard it said, but I say it is written. He's correcting them. He's saying, not the oral law, the written law, not the traditions of man, the writings of Yahweh. This is Torah right here, folks. This is Torah. If you don't understand Torah, you don't understand your new covenant. If you don't understand your new covenant, you can't possibly accept it or come under it. This is all logic. I am reading this stuff. I'm taking it on its own terms. I'm not worried about what I'd learned before. I'm learning. This is why I brought you through these histories. I've set the table. I'm now starting to connect fireflies. So he says, "Ah," Jesus says, it is written. This is what Jesus means when he says he did not come to destroy or pervert the the Torah, the law, but to fulfill it, correct bad teachings. When we say, oh, he came to make it all perfect and it's done away with, that is not what he said. How do I know that? Because he did not fulfill all. Yes, he did. No, he did not. Two thirds of the prophecies about the Messiah have yet to be fulfilled at the time of the ascension. Two thirds. If he had fulfilled all, then they'd done. If he had fulfilled all, you'd be going into eternity. You haven't done that. We're still here. This world, this old world, is still here. You've misunderstood that term. It's used three or four times in the New Testament, a rabbinical saying. It means I did, because right after this, he says, anybody who teaches the least of these to make, to do away with one of these ordinances, one of these pieces of Torah of teaching will be least in heaven. So if you're going to turn around, right after he says this, you say, well, he's done away with the law. You just violated the very next line in that passage. You are in disobedience to the Messiah. I don't know about you, but that is ground that I fear to tread. Mr. Gomez can go dance there all he wants. I ain't doing it. I'm going to be the sinner that stays afar back and thumps my chest on my face. But I ain't dancing there in front of the Messiah saying, I just did away with the Torah because you said I could. Right after he says, if you do away with the least of these laws, you're least in heaven. Mm -mm, I ain't doing that. You can. I won't. It's clearly in the scriptures. It's in the exact same context and passage. So he did this both to explain the written law, what he means by I came to, you know, to fulfill it. He came to explain the Torah correctly and then give us an actual physical example of how to live it, which is why John tells us, the Apostle John, imitate the Messiah. Well, if you do that, you're going to be in a Torah observant Hebrew that's how he lived. It's in the Gospels. Now, there's a clear pattern in all of this. Let's cover this and then we'll go to the break. Yahweh continuously restores his people, sets them right, tells them clearly what he expects of them, and they continuously choose to do things their way, which forces Yahweh to allow the curses, otherwise he's not going to be lawful himself, and to bring down punishment and wrath upon them. excuse me, until he relents, shows his mercy and restores them once again. This last time he did this, he came down in person in the form of his son and showed us in person how to live this. He's like, okay, I've done this through my prophets. I've done it face to face with the patriarchs. Finally, I'm just going to come down there in flesh and blood and I'm going to try and show you maybe this time you'll get it. Nope, nope, nope. So now I have a question. Why does the body of believers today that calls themselves Christians think that they are immune from this pattern? What? This is logic. Mr. Gomez tells me he's immune from this. The church has been flawless ever since. He says, oh, we make many mistakes, but stick with the traditions of the church. You just told me you make mistakes, Mr. Gomez, but you want me to stick with your traditions. You're telling me, oh, yeah, I'm a Pharisee. I've made mistakes, but stick with the teachings of the Pharisees. Where did that get the Pharisees in front of Jesus? Where do you think that you are immune from making a mistake of your understanding of the scriptures? Why does the body of professed believers think it it is excused from the pattern that has befallen every other epoch in the history of Yahweh's people? I don't see it. Mankind's nature has not changed. We have not been restored. I expect we're going to fall into that pattern. Jesus warned us that there would come a time when the people who would kill his disciples... They would be thinking they're doing Yahweh's work. Paul's one of these in the in the book of Acts. Paul's sitting there helping to kill the, the saints, you know, Stephen. He's holding their, holding their coats, and he thought he's doing the work of Yahweh. Later, the church is going to start killing Jews, thinking that Jews are the enemies of Yahweh. The book I'm currently reading, the author starts out in chapter 1, saying that Jews are the enemies of God's chosen people. The Jews are the house of Judah. They hold the scepter. That's where David comes from. If Jews are the enemies of God's chosen people, Messiah's a Jew.
0: What the heck happened to that author? Anyhow, both of these groups,
2: the people of Judah, when they're killing the converts to the way, to the the disciples of Jesus, they think they're doing Yahweh's work. When the disciples of Jesus later turn around and start killing the Jews, they think they're doing Yahweh's work. Both are blind to their own guilt. Both see the other side's guilt. Neither sees their own. Both are wrong, and both are in the crosshairs of Christ's warning. So the accusation against the Hebrew Roots Movement, I agree with a lot of them. But the visible professing church has missed its own guilt. And I will use logic to show you that in the next hour, straight from the scriptures and from the prophets, if you have ears to hear. See you in six minutes. Okay, real quick. We've got a comment on the board that is a teaching moment that is right in line with what we're covering today. Logic, Torah, and does it still apply to us? Throw that comment up there for me, Charlie. Road Dog says, he who has not sinned cast the first stone. The surface level, that makes sense. None of us should be accusing anybody because we've all sinned. If you do not understand Torah, you will not understand what's actually going on. And the, the the blanket message is good. Got it. I'm not criticizing. But if you don't understand this from a Torah observant Hebrew perspective, you miss the deeper meaning of what's actually going on in this passage. When they bring the adulteress to Jesus, they're trying to trap him. They want him to say, okay, go ahead and stone her. But there's a problem with that. Not only is it illegal for him to execute somebody at that time, The law says they were supposed to bring the man and the two witnesses that caught them. So when the people come and bring her alone without the man that was involved and the two witnesses or more to testify against them, they're breaking the law themselves right there and then. So yes, we can apply this globally to all sinners, but he's also telling the people right there in front of him, you guys know you should have brought the man and the two witnesses, where are they? If you are without sin in this current subterfuge you're committing against me, then you cast the first stone. So he said, go ahead and kill her. He did. He upheld the law. But he did it in a way that they could not do so without getting themselves guilty, which would have made them guilty of murder. And then they would have been the next ones stoned. And remember what the scriptures tell us. The older, wiser people are the first ones that left because they realize, oops, gotten ourselves in trouble here. If you don't understand Torah, you will not understand that passage to its deeper level. Just like if you're reading Romans 7, Paul tells you, I am only talking to those who understand Torah very well. And then he continues, if you are going to read Romans 7 and 8 and even 6 a little bit before that without understanding Torah, you cannot properly understand what Paul's saying. Not that you don't care. You're going to have to understand the Torah. Paul just told you. He's talking to people who understand the Torah like the back of their hands. He doesn't expect to have to stop and explain what should be obvious to you. And then off he goes. One of the things Mr. Gomez says, he goes, well, the Hebrew roots people tell you about Peter's warning that Paul is tough. Like that covers everything. No, it doesn't cover everything. Peter's warning is, Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees who studied at the feet of Gilel or Gamil. If you don't know Torah like a back of your hand, you're not going to understand everything Paul tells you. That's what Peter's saying. That's what the Hebrew Roots Movement is trying to say. Mr. Gomez dismisses that. You can't do that. It's right in your scriptures. All I'm trying to do is apply logic. If I take this passage and ignore those, it's called cherry-picking. It's a fallacy. And when I'm dealing with God's Word, immediately I have, when I introduce a fallacy into my understanding of the Scriptures, I just broke Scripture. I'm the one committing a heresy. Okay. Good on you, but I'm not sure that's going to work out too well. Okay. So back where we were start when we stopped. I have a serious, a sincere, serious, serious, sincere, however you want to put it, question. For all those who call ourselves to believe, all of us, all of us, Jew, Hebrew roots, Christian, Catholic, Protestant, I don't care. All of us. The New Testament says to search the scriptures for all our answers. The New Testament does not exist yet. So when it tells us to search the scriptures, it means the Tanakh. The Tanakh is supposed to be able to answer all of my questions, even about the new covenant. Paul's words, not mine. Jesus said, if we will not understand and believe what Moses had to say about him, there's nothing more he can tell us to make us understand and believe. What does that mean? What does John tell us Jesus is? The Word made flesh. Torah made flesh. If you will not uh, accept and believe what Moses wrote about Torah, then when he comes in the form of flesh, when the Torah is made man and comes to you in the flesh, flesh and blood, and you still will not believe, there's nothing more he can do to teach you. Mr. Gomez says that Jesus is not the Torah made flesh. He's a self professed Christian who denies John 1 1.
0: Mm. Okay.
2: It's in his book. I'm sorry, I'm going with John 1 1. Torah made flesh. And the Torah is Yahweh. Torah. In the beginning, there was the Torah, the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh, came down and dwelt amongst us, Emmanuel. I think that's hard doctrine. There's no figurative language there. That is statement of fact language, and it's prophesied. And then Jesus turns around and says, Moses wrote about me. About Torah. So, if you're not going to believe Moses, Christian, why do you believe Jesus? Or do you? Have you made up your own Jesus? Because if you have, Paul's got a few words about that. They're not good. I don't know. I'm still questioning at this point. This is logic. I'm asking questions. Now I'm going to go search the Bible for answers. John tells us okay, got that. Moses is writing about Jesus, Torah. So how can Torah be done away, yet Jesus remain, when they're one and the same? Jesus came to do away with himself, right? No, Jesus came to set up a new covenant. He can't. If he does away with the law, he's done away with himself. This is simple logic. He is the Torah made flesh. If he came to do away with the Torah, he did away with himself. A house divided cannot stand. Somebody has misunderstood something. I've been taught wrong. Full stop on everything I've ever been taught at this point. All I'm doing is reading the scriptures, face value, New and Old Testament, and asking, what does that mean? And when I get an answer, I go, what does that mean? I'm applying logic. I'm trying to noodle my way through this. Is this one of these magical instances where we're not supposed to read the scriptures at face value? And exactly where does that little game end? Who can tell me where and when I get to willy-nilly enforce the passages literally and figuratively and then uh, spiritually? This one's literal, that one's figurative, that one's spiritual. Who's, Who's got the rule book for that? I mean, it's actually in the language, if you learn how language works there are linguistic indicators that tell you you're dealing with allegory and metaphor and and you know symbolic language there are linguistic indicators that you're dealing with statements of just straight up fact in the beginning there was the word that's a factual statement the word was with god that's a factual statement and the word was god that's a factual statement The word became flesh and came down and dwelt amongst us. That's a factual statement. There's no allegory. There's no spiritualization. That's hardcore. That has to be read as literal. That's not a polemic. Genesis, the creation story, that's a polemic. It's written, first of all, in poetic form. Second of all, it's dealing with spiritual matters. How do we know it's a polemic? Because if it's not, it contradicts with the creation story in Job. And scripture cannot be broken. So either Job is a lie and shouldn't be scripture, Genesis creation story is a lie and shouldn't be scripture, or neither of them is about how the world was actually created. It's about something else. Ah, concepts. So I'm looking back at Torah. Torah is made flesh. No, Joe, it says the word. Yes, Torah, teachings. What do you think word means? That's an ancient, he- well, not ancient, it's old English. It means the decree of the king. That's why in the Marine Corps, we still always ask, you know, what's the word? What that means is, what the heck has the headshed decided to tell us to do? What are the officers decided we're going to do? What are our orders? What's the word? What are our orders? It's what it means. So the orders, or in this case, the Torah, the teachings, the word, become flesh. And that, if if you want to see how concept works, all things that were created were created through Torah. The world is sustained through the conscious will of Torah. Joe, the, the scriptures say all things were created through Jesus and sustained by Jesus. Yes, exactly. And Jesus is Torah. Yeah, see how the concept starts to help you put it together? Road Dog 71 says, And when Jesus ascended, the word ended, just continued on by his disciples. No, the, wor- the word went back up to the spiritual realm. The kingdom is spiritual now. It's not just physical, it's also spiritual on earth as it is in heaven. But the word can transcend, it can cross both realms, just like. Anything can cross both realms when it comes to God theology, but that's a different, we'll have to tackle that one a little later today. So back to my question here. So if the Old Testament is our guide, just like Paul said, be a good and search the scriptures, the Old Testament. Where exactly does it prophesy about the church as it exists and functions today? Where did the Bible tell us that Torah would be done away? Does anybody? Have, I'm being very sincere here. I don't mean to be a smart aleck. This is logic. So Joe's going to look in the mirror. I've read this many times. Where does it tell me the Torah is going to go? It doesn't. Ever. Jesus said it stays until this world ends. So Yahweh says He does not act without first telling His prophets, and then His prophets then tell the people. So if Yahweh was going to do away with the Torah for a while, he would have told his prophets, and his prophets would have told me, and that would have been the word of Yahweh, and that would have been preserved in the scriptures, but I don't see it here. Jesus said he came to fulfill correct misunderstandings. Yet search as I might, I cannot find a prophecy foretelling the church as it exists today. I can find a prophecy condemning the church as it exists today. Well, we've already covered that in a previous show. I don't want to get into that today. I can find warnings about the practices of the modern church today in the prophets. I can also find prophecies about a spiritual prince who will seek to change the Moedim and the Torah, the times and the laws. Has anybody changed the Sabbath the feasts, and the Torahs lately? The Torah? Has has anybody changed the way those are observed in capital? And if so, what should we make of the practices they use to replace them? Look, Israel, a golden calf, Yahweh, who brought you out of Egypt. What did that almost get the people for doing? Had it not been for Moses, burned up. Hmm. Then the Northern Kingdom does the same thing with two calves, Baal worship, and they get dispersed into the nations for this. And yet, Mr. Gomez thinks the Catholic Church is immune from that. And we have a Pope telling us it's okay to marry our faith with Islam because all faith ends in the same place. Even though the Messiah says there is one gate and he's me. And I'm Torah. What do we do with that? It's a serious question. When's the last time your pastor preached on this? All of those questions, that's logic. I'm just applying logic. I'm reading the rule book, and I'm saying there are some contradictions here between what the rule book says and what the church teaches me. Now, which one am I going to follow? Well, all the keys were given to me, Joe. Oh, no, it wasn't. I am a jealous L. I will not share my glory with anybody else. So that would be a contradiction. So maybe I didn't understand what the keys means. Whatsoever you ask in his name, in his shem, in other words, in agreement with his will, he and the father will give you. Whatsoever you ask outside of his will (laughs) makes you his enemy. So, what do we do here? Do we dismiss the traditions of the church fathers and say, you know, what the heck? Or do we go with the scriptures? Or how do we make sense of so how are we supposed to know? Well, I know that the pattern I brought up earlier tells me uh, patterns are important. The Pharisees did it their way, and look at that, got them. Northern kingdom did it their way. Look what that got them. The southern kingdom did it their way. The only reason they weren't destroyed is so that prophecy wouldn't be destroyed. Yahweh says so in Jeremiah. We'll read that here shortly. So here's where Charlie might want to chime in. Before we go to the scriptures to look for our answers, and we're going to, a little Hebrew, the word Hebrew, and the, the, the Hebrew words that we're going to cover and their meaning and understanding, grace. Race is better understood as favor i you know like you favor one child over another so it's not that yahweh hated esau and loved jacob it's that yahweh favored jacob over esau that's the proper hebrew understanding there
1: why because
2: jacob was obedient hmm hmm Yeah. He favored Abraham.
1: And what happens when you are obedient to a king or a father?
2: They're forgiving because you're part of the family or part of the kingdom.
1: Right. They'll and... restore
2: you when you screw up, as long as you right. repent, you know, return and seek forgiveness. Right. And they're merciful. They'll teach you and they will correct you when you're wrong. Yes.
1: And they're more likely to help you, mm-hmm. bless you. Mm
2: -hmm. now the Hebrew word for faith that's an act of trust in other words it's an action these are verbs in Hebrew there are noun forms but when you're talking about salvation they're verbs Abraham was justified by his faith yes and when you go back and you read the passage Yahweh says because you did this thing, I accept you. I see that you love me.
1: Because of his righteousness. Yes.
2: He acted on his faith because he knew Yahweh would be faithful. He didn't question. He didn't doubt. That's a powerful faith, folks. Torah means instruction, not necessarily law, as as Charlie was pointing out to me yesterday. The the Old Testament, the Hebrew, there is a word for law, and then there's also a word for ordinances. Instruction, law, and ordinances have slightly different meanings, but crucial distinctions. This is not semantics. Sin is missing the mark. You didn't follow dad's instructions properly. And repent means to return to the way, to the teachings, to the father. And what does Jesus tell us all the way through the Gospels? Accept me, say my little prayer, and get dunked. No. Repent, for the kingdom of Yahweh is at hand. Repent, return to Torah, return to Yahweh, for the kingdom of Yahweh is at hand. Repent, repent. What did the apostles teach in, in the book of Acts? Repent, repent, repent. Now let me explain the new and old covenant to you in a way that just dawned on me in recent weeks. And I know it's true because I'm tracing the concept. And I've had multiple witnesses affirm this one to me after I explained it to him. Clay, if you're still listening, this is because of you, brother. The tree of knowledge of what? Good and evil. Sin and righteousness. If you eat of the tree of knowledge, you've come under the law. The law requires death when you break it. The tree of life, that's grace and favor. That's those who are inside the family in the kingdom. The tree of good of knowledge of good and evil, those are outside of the family in the kingdom. Vine. Messiah. Also the house of Israel. You're grafted in. Gentiles are adopted into the family by the blood of Messiah. Your inheritance, your eternal life as a member of the family in the kingdom. So when you are grafted in through the blood of the Messiah, you leave the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You leave the law and you come back, you come under grace. You're now part of the family. Yahweh is your father. You're in the kingdom of Yahweh. Eternal life is the inheritance of that kingdom. If you're going to walk away from that once you're there, this is what Paul means by don't put yourself back under the law. Don't go back under the law of sin and death. Because if you do, you cannot twice crucify Christ to get back into the kingdom. This works if you're tracing the concept. If you don't, then you'll never see it this way. It does not mean I'm wrong. I know I'm right on this because there are many passages that support this thinking. Case in point, let me read just a few, try to help illustrate just a little piece of this. Messiah is the vine. Also, the kingdom of of, uh, Israel is the vine. That's that's the inheritance. That's the inheritance. Actually, Messiah is the root. The vine is Israel. But this all works. This is all part of the picture. Genesis 49, 22. Jacob, the man Israel, is blessing his sons. This says, Joseph is a fruitful branch, a fruitful branch by a spring. Its branches hang over a wall. Now just, I'll explain all of this. I'll come back. Let me read the passages. Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel. And the house of Israel and the people of Judah are his delightful plant. So he waited for justice, but he behold, there was bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Matthew 21, 33 through 46, parable of the landowner. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, This is the heir, come and let's kill him and take possession of his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and lease the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the fruit in the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you ever read in the scriptures, a stone which the builder rejected. This has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And on whom it falls, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And although they sought to arrest him, they feared the crowds since they considered him a prophet. How does all this tie together with what we're talking about? Watch the concept. I was telling you vineyard. Okay. Genesis 49, Joseph is a fruitful branch. Joseph is the head of the northern kingdom through Ephraim. Ephraim holds the birthright. He's a fruitful branch. He's not the vine itself. He's not the root of the vine. He's not the root of Jesse. That's the Messiah. Messiah comes from Judah. Judah is the vineyard. That's in Isaiah in the parable. Now hold on. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his delightful plant. That's parallelism. I'm talking about both kingdoms. So the parallelism puts them together. So both kingdoms work together in this. How? How? The root of Jesse, the Messiah, has to come out of Judah. He's the scepter. He's the king. He's the vineyard. So, listen to the parable. The landowner, Yahweh, planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, the holy lands, and dug a winepress in it and built a tower, and he leased it to the vine growers, the Hebrews, who become the Jews, the house of Judah, the faithful house of Judah. And then he goes on a journey. And when he har- when harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit, the prophets. And the vine growers took his slaves and, and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more prophets. And they did the same. But when the vine growers saw the son, the Messiah, oh, he's got the inheritance. Remember Caiaphas? It's better for one man to die for the nation because if we let this man continue he'll bring back the northern tribes and we will lose our power and authority it's in john i think it's chapter 52 the pharisees know this he's talking about them in this parable violent men who have forced themselves into the kingdom to take over says, and they took him and they threw him out in the vineyard and killed him. They killed Jesus outside of the walls of, of David, the, the city of David, outside of Jerusalem. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, when he returns, what will he do to these? He'll destroy them. Christians read this and they say, see, the Jews have been rejected. That's not who's rejected here. Did you read the rest of the scripture? When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Not the Jews. Them. The leaders who had perverted the faith, who had taught the oral law, their laws. Remember, Jesus says, you have piled so many laws on their back they cannot keep them. You're doing this. The church's traditions are the same parallel to what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees are the ones that are going to lose out on the kingdom because they're not keeping Yahweh's teachings. The concept flows right through all of those passages, and many more. If I wanted to add them, it would make this class too long because there's something else I want to show you. We're still tracking, does Torah apply under the new covenant? Yes? Okay. Time to do some reading. This. This is where I wanted to set everybody up for. This is going to take a little time. It'll get us through the rest of the show. I'm going to explain as I go as best I can. You might need to come back and rewatch this. A few prophecies. Does Torah still apply under the new covenant? All of this weaves together by tracing concept. Torah, the teachings of Yahweh. Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4. You will find this expanded on in Micah chapter 4, God's universal reign. The word which Isaiah, Isaiah the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now what will come about that in the last days, in my understanding, that is after the ascension. That's what starts the last days. In my understanding, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. The mountain, the kingdom of Yahweh, will be erased above the house of the Lord. The temple was raised. It was plowed to the ground. So the house of the Lord is now the body, the ecclesia, the people. The kingdom of Yahweh has come. In the latter days, the kingdom of... This is the ascension. This is the rider on the white horse with the bow of Judah, riding out to conquer the king of this world, Satan. And he's going to have the fillet full of the arrow of Ephraim, the lost kingdoms, lost tribes. So this continues. And many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us about his ways, his Torah, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go out of Zion from Jerusalem, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The Torah will go out from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will mediate for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning forks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. This is a here and na- then, now and then prophecy. No, we haven't reached this eternal time where nobody fights anymore. But this is talking about when the word goes out from Zion. What happened after the fall of the temple? The apostles were scattered into the world. What did they preach? The gospel, the word of Yahweh. The word went out from Jerusalem, the rider on the horse. The spiritual leader, Yeshua, sitting at the right hand of the Father, leads his disciples to preach the gospel into all the nations. Okay. Let's read about that new covenant, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Two houses, that's an and, that's not parallelism. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. They were married, which means they have the inheritance. The wedding supper of the lamb, you have to get remarried. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. My Torah, my law is going to be in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Torah was not done away with. We were just told the new covenant is going to be tied to Torah in your heart, not on the stones anymore, in your heart. So if you tell me Torah no longer applies to the new covenant, what religion are you following? Because it is not the new covenant. By the mouth of Yahweh through his prophet Jeremiah. Simple logic. I can't break this. Okay. They will not teach each other, uh, teach again, one and his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, and they will know me. For the least of them, to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sins, and I will no longer remember. You're under grace now. The Torah still applies. Okay. So next passage these are all related i'm going to go to hosea 9 verses 1 through 3 ephraim is punished this is the leader of the northern kingdom ephraim he holds the birthright if you want into the kingdom you are grafted in through the northern kingdom through the house of israel you're graft where does paul say you're grafted into in romans through israel ha huh. Do not rejoice, Israel, with jubilation like the nations, for you have been unfaithful, abandoning your God, Israel, house of Israel, the one who's been divorced. You have loved the earnings of unfaithfulness on every threshing floor. Ephraim is a trained heifer. He loves to thresh. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Hosea is the prophet to the northern kingdoms. he's saying you're going to be exiled this is right before Assyria comes and conquers him but Ephraim will return to Egypt physical bondage and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. This is the northern kingdoms are going to eat unclean food. this is going this prophecy goes way past the cross. I promise you it does. If you trace this, you will find that Ephraim is talked about way past the New Covenant. So why, why is there unclean food if that was done away with? If you doubt me, stick with me. Hold on. I will prove it to you using Isaiah. Prophets are all speaking from the same author. Holy Spirit inspired. So this is all one story. Hosea eleven eight 8 through 12. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? Ephraim and Israel, same kingdom. How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me, and my compassions are kindled. I will not carry out my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. Been destroyed once. This is after the fall of the kingdom. This is Hosea. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. And his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declared the Lord. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is still unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. So in other words, Ephraim is still still rebellious, and so is Judah. He's talking about him two different ways, but he says Ephraim is going to come back trembling from the west. When the house of Israel is restored, not the house of Israel that way, but when the nation of Israel is restored in Ezekiel, they come from the north and from the four corners of the wind. Ephraim is not Judah. This is not talking about the physical restoration of of Israel as a nation. This is talking about the second exodus. Let's jump to Jeremiah. All of this is connected, folks. This is Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 14 through 17. Pay attention. It says, God will restore them. That's the subtitle in my Bible. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had banished them. This is not the sons of all Jews. This is the sons of the house of Israel. How do I know? This is the second Exodus. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am going to send for many fishermen. He doesn't send fishermen after Jews. They're already married. I send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is the wrongdoing concealed from my eyes. That is to hunt for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, plus all those Gentiles who are loyal to Yahweh. They will fish for both, because the Gentiles are grafted into the house of Israel. That's who that prophecy is sent to. So when Jesus tells the apostles, come, I'll make you fishers of men, he's telling them, I'm going to initiate the start of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And who does he send them to? Go only but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus says, I was sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Gomez says he sent to the Jews and to the Gentiles. No, he says Gentiles rather. He thinks the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that's just Gentiles. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's echoing the Torah. He is Torah. He knows he's talking about the house of Israel. Judah's already married. Judah was never given a divorce. Judah doesn't need to be evangelized like this. Judah doesn't need to be brought back into the family. They're already there. Concept. Mr. Gomez is following Christian traditions that say the Christian church replaced the Jews. That is not what the prophecy says. Let's go to Amos 8, verses 11 through 12. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north end to the east. They will roam about to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. I looked it up in my interlinear. They will look for the Torah. The Torah, the Torah. People are going to look for Torah. The Hebrew Roots Movement, Mr. Gomez, is a prophetic fulfillment. Amos told us these times were coming. Uh Uh-huh, he did, but he's not alone. Zechariah 8, 23, the Lord of Armies says, in those days, 10 people from all the nations, or Goyim, Gentiles, however you want to put it, Will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for you have heard that God is we have heard that God is with you. Go teach us his Torah. Th- that's Zechariah. Zechariah is an end times prophet. Zechariah is talking about near the end of time. People are going to want to be learning about Torah. You're going to grab hold of the hem of him who is a Jew. Then Isaiah 66, 15 through 17. <laughs> You think none of this is connected? Okay. Isaiah is now talking about the very end of time. This is in the section where he talks about the remaking of the world. End times battles, the second coming. He says, for behold, the Lord will come in fire. How is the world going to be destroyed the next time? Fire. That tells you where we're at. And his chariots, like the whirlwind, to rend his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on humanity, the word of his mouth. And those put to death by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens following one in the center, who eats pig flesh, detestable things, and mice, will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. I thought the dietary laws were done away with. This is the very end of time and they're still being condemned for eating unclean food. Now, you don't go to hell for eating unclean food. That's not the point. You eat unclean either to survive because you have no other choice. Ephraim will have many days eating unclean food, or you do it because you're in rebellion to your father's instructions. Greeting 11 on the board, comment on the board. So what happens if family members, house of Judah, does not follow the rules? <sighs> Same thing that happens to us if we don't follow the rules. Same thing that happened to the Pharisees. I don't know exactly how Judah can follow the rules and still be saved. Yeah, That's right, Clay. No more bacon, but no more catfish and whatever. I've been doing this for several years. It's to be set apart. It's to show that you're different. That's what it's for. Before I start explaining this, there's one more passage I want to read to you. One last passage. Many people misunderstand this, too. Daniel 12, verse 1 through 4. It says, Now at, the time, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. That puts us in the very end times. This is right when the Messiah is returning. In those years. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. That's all believers. That's spiritual Israel. Everybody who has their name in the book, Jew, Gentile, House of Israel, all of them. What it says, name written in the book, right? Okay. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. One resurrection. One. Many who sleep in the dust will be raised, some to everlasting life, some to contempt. One resurrection. Believers first, then the non-believers. And those who have insight will shine like the glow of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness. Righteousness is lawfulness, following Torah. You've been teaching people to follow Torah the whole time, like the stars forever and ever. Stars are teachers, teachers stars. There's your prophetic connection. But as for you, Daniel, keep those words a secret and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will roam about, and knowledge will increase. Knowledge of what? Hosea 4, 6, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Yes, Joe! keep reading. Knowledge of the Torah. And because you don't study the Torah and don't know the Torah, I will forget you and your children. So because I want to learn the Torah, Gomez says I'm a heretic. Scripture tells me I better know it and I better follow it right to the freaking very end or I won't have my name in the book of life. I am not saved by Torah. I am saved by putting my faith in Yahweh to save me no matter how screwed up I am. But that faith better act in the belief that he will keep his promises. And part of those promises are if you do certain things, you're going to get punished, boy. Just like my dad promised, if I did XYZ, that belt was coming out of them loops. Sure enough, it did. I need to, and that's why I didn't do it because I knew dad meant it in my house. Yeah, buddy. Well, we have the perfect father. When he says, don't do this, and you do it, you better live in the faith that the punishment's coming. But if you're a child, you get punished. If you're outside of the family, you get condemned and imprisoned. And in this case, that's outside of the kingdom. Now, all of this, and part of it, thanks to Clay's question a couple weeks ago, I finally understand the passage of violent men forcing themselves into the kingdom. These are people who do it their way. They, The kingdom is service to Yahweh. Are we not slaves of the Lord? Do we not do his work? I, you know, Paul, slave of Messiah, you do his work. You do his kingdom work. So you're in service to the kingdom. As long as you're a slave, you submit to him, his will. His Torah, his instructions. But if you enter into service of Yahweh and you do it your way, man, I am healing in the name of Jesus. I am bringing down all these blessings in the name of Jesus. I am doing all these things. I'm saving people, all this stuff in there. Hey, be gone from me, Joe. I never knew you because I was doing it my way and for my glory, not his way for his glory. Whoopsie. Well, scripture doesn't say he's going to banish me. Oh, yes, it does. Matthew 7, 20 through 23. In a parable about the guy who comes to the, you know, everybody gets their wedding clothes and and the master sees him in the wedding without his wedding clothes on. Who gives him the wedding clothes? The master, the Messiah gives you. He's the one who clothes you in the wedding clothes. Not us. We can't do that. But this guy forced himself into the party without the wedding clothes on. He's in the service to the king, to the guy who's putting on the party. And when the king sees him, he says, Throw that hammer and knock out of here. He don't belong. In other words, be gone from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness, Torahlessness. So, Mr. Gomez, you might want to reread your scriptures from the perspective of a Torah observant Hebrew because they do not say what you think they say. Logic dictates that. And Mr. Gomez likes to point out fallacies in the Hebrew roots movement, and he's right about most of them. The problem is, while he's pointing out those fallacies, he's doing the exact same fallacy from the Christian perspective. If you show me you understand logic that well, and then you commit those very same fallacies in the defense of your argument, I consider that intentional, which makes this book. Heresy. But that's my opinion. This is how I use logic to ta- deal with this issue. Second witness. Yeah. yeah, Charlie's read it. This is how I use logic to deal with this issue. Joe, are you teaching people wrong? Not at all. Not at all. I'm just teaching them as I wrestle with Elohim to understand his ways. The question is not whether or not Torah still applies. Scripture is very clear, it does. The question should be, how does it apply under the new covenant? There's no temple. There are no Levites. There's no nation of Israel, at least not part of it. How does the covenant apply? How, How does the Torah apply? What parts? That's what we should be looking at. How can Yahweh condemn you for not keeping certain? Well, like Joe, we can't do anything with the temple. Ah, be careful of that. Where is the temple now? In the heart of the believer. Well, then there is a temple. So instead of all of us males having to go to the temple to celebrate the feasts every feast season, what do we got to do? Well, we got to bring the temple together where two or more of you are gathered, where does Yahweh dwell? What's, what's the Hebrew word for his his shining uh, presence and everything? Shekinah. Shekinah. Where's his Shekinah at all the time there, Charlie? It's always in a temple or in the tabernacle, right? It usually is. Yeah. Well, where's the tabernacle now? The body of believers. It's now a spiritual kingdom. We, the enti- everybody who's in the book of life, you are the heavenly Israel. The scripture actually tells you that if you bother to read it. It, it, it actually tells you just that you are the shining city on the hill. So you got to come together in little groups and little congregations that forms the tabernacle, and that's where you can. So now how do I handle sacrifices? Well, you don't need to worry about that anymore. Messiah sacrifice took care of that. How do I handle the Levitical priesthood? Well, there are no more Levites that way. We don't know who they are anymore. And we, we can't be sure we know who the sons of Aaron are, so we can't do this which is why the Messiah is under the order of Zedek. Well, how does that work? This is what we should be studying. And it's in the scriptures. That's what we should be studying. We know his teachings still apply to us. We have not been forgiven of them. There's a Protestant minister. Now, he was recalled a couple of years ago, went home to be with, and I have no doubt he's with Yahweh. His name is David Paulson. He's from Europe. He's from England, good teacher. He did a seminar in Southeast Asia for preachers. And he was talking about this very subject. And he tells them, aren't we blessed? We're under grace. We don't have to worry about those 613 laws of Moses. And everybody in the room clapped and, you know, they were all happy. And he sat and he waited until they got quiet. And then he goes, but about those 1,000 hundred and something laws in the New Testament. And there was a pin drop in the room. And then he smiled and he said, Ah, I have your attention now, don't I? And he's right. There are more commandments in the New Testament than there are in the Old. How many Christians teach you about those commandments? They're the commandments of Jesus and the apostles. Are you taught about those in church? Or are you taught that you're under grace and love covers a multitude of sins and you're good to go? Logic tells me that there's something wrong in the church. The logic also tells me, Mr. Gomez rightly points something out. The Hebrew Roots Movement, it spans all denominations of Christianity. It has no centralized leadership, no charismatic leader. And it all chases after the same thing. They're looking to get back to the original teachings of the faith. That should have been a ding, 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 ding. There's something to this, Mr. Gomez. But no, he immediately dismisses it. If you have that many people... From that wide of a of a of a cast, that big of a net on the on the body of believers, and they're all ending up in the same area. Now they might get lost on their way, but the bulk of them are landing in the same place. That hey, there's something to this Torah. We need to start learning from the Jews. We're not trying to become Jews, We're trying to learn from them. Ten men from the nations. What's the number of ten signify here prophetically, uh, Charlie? What would, what would that number bring up? <laughs>
1: oh it's used over and over yeah but over in this case again. do you
2: think maybe it's got something to do with the 10 lost tribes from ten the lost nation lost
1: tribes, and all the, those grafted in with them the remnant uh tithing i yeah. mean their first fruit first, yeah. Yeah, that's what tithing is connected to yeah there's all oh, all sorts of stuff with that That number, number
2: wasn't used haphazard how many bridesmaids in the story of the 10 bridesmaids oh 10
1: oh, 10 whoops
2: Five of them left their lamp on Torah. Mm. Number five is Torah. Yep. Five of them let their Torah go out. Go out. There are ten coins that the woman's searching for one of them because she lost it. Which commandment has the church lost? <laughs> the Sabbath? Yeah. This concept echoes all throughout your scripture. Once you trace the concept, all these passages start just falling into place. Clay told her today most churches are about money. Yes remember the harlot on the on the beast is drunk and, and the people the merchants are drunk with her and the wine and she got tied into you know church and state for the money that it brings everybody
1: oh we we're just talking about that before the show today that many churches are businesses now yep. they're not
2: i don't know how many of you see what i'm it, this was applied logic to scripture pure and simple This is absolutely crystal clear to me in my mind. It is coherent. It is consistent. There's no contradictions. It all fits. It's all in scripture. And folks, Charlie will be a second witness to this one because he's been with me on this. I cherry picked the passages for you. We could be here for another two hours with me bringing the ones up that comply directly to this.
1: Can I, Charlie? Oh, yes. There's many, 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 many. He's
2: been in the room when I start slinging them out there. There are tons of them. And they all line up perfectly. So this is how I applied logic. And real quick before we sign off for today, I did all of this in a bubble at the time. I was not paying attention to the world outside of me, what was going on Christianity. Yahweh had me focused on me and the little group I was teaching. And we were good Barians. We tested each other the whole way through. Tasha was with me during this. She tested this. We tested the scriptures over and over and over again. And then I found my way to this congregation, and that's when I found out I'm part of this Hebrew Moots movement thing. And they celebrated. They said, there hasn't been a group as big as yours coming out of, you know, in in years, because they would keep track of it. It used to be lots of these groups. And I only had nine people with me, and it was cause for celebration within that that wider community. We were known all over the Southeast that we had done this. They spread the word. How did I find my way to them from the bubble? Doing nothing but looking at the scriptures if there wasn't something to what I was doing, many paths to one truth. Don't ever forget that. And that's actually where I learned that saying, many paths to one truth. I learned that from my journey to where I'm at right now. Because I once I got here and I started looking around and I started reading and I've realized I'm not alone. We're small in number, but there are many small congregations that have found themselves the exact same place but the number of people getting here are starting to become very few. That's because time is almost out. The prophetic clock is just a few ticks to something major happening. I'm not telling you he's coming back, but boy, it won't surprise me. He is. Yeah. Well, you know know what I mean? I'm not saying he's coming back soon. All right. Let's wrap this one up. Charlie, where's my money?
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can't believe you 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 made it through that and you had about 10 minutes to spare at the end too and i'm like oh my gosh you made it through
2: (laughs) tomorrow i'm going to introduce you to dr heiser the divine council worldview and reversing hermon reversing hermon is about kingdom theology he never used that language but that's exactly what he was writing about and you can't talk about kingdom theology without talking about ezekiel 37 and as soon as you talk about ezekiel 37 Yo, Mr. Gomez, you right back in the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Thank you, brother. Amen. <laughs> That's my preacher invitation for the day. We love each and every one of you. We hope you'll be here with us tomorrow. This will continue. If we're doing anything that is of value or blessing you, please hit the thumbs up or the rumble up button that talks to Natasha and Charlie and I and lets us know that we individually are doing good. That's how you talk to us, even if you don't want to email us. If you can, not we would be very grateful if you were to go to the donate button or the donut button. We just ask, set up $5 a month reoccurring payment. Help us last a little longer than next February or March. I got to get some money in the bank. Otherwise it runs out, man. And we won't be here because we just can't afford to pay the bills anymore. If there are people out there you think we can help, send them the link to this show. Maybe the specific show you want them to watch. Warn them about me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I accept that. I, I I, know. I'm the love child of Gregory House and Sheldon Cooper. I, I got that. But it's about what I teach. I don't know any other way to teach it. I don't know how to sugarcoat things that that are ugly, folks. But at the same time, I will be a good drill sergeant. I will take you by the hand. And I might yell and scream the whole way, but I'll hold you through it. And I will see you to the other end, even if I got to carry you. So. I've got my pros and cons. Thanks for that mental image, Natasha. (laughs) All right. Y'all stay safe until tomorrow. We'll see you then. Take care. Yahweh bless. Bye-bye.